0: Well, the sermon text today is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. So I want to invite you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And because it's so good, we've got to keep reading. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food but God will do away with both of them yet the body is not for immorality but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body skip to 19 pardon me 18 flee immorality every other sin that a man commits is outside the body but the immoral man sins against his own body do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body." This is the Word of the living God. Some time ago, the elders planned today's sermon. We've been praying about it as many of you have. Because you've had the previous church card, knew that it was coming, you saw the text, you saw the title, and as many of you are wont to do, you have been preparing yourself for today and you've been doing so in prayer. But when the elders planned the sermon, there were really two uh, main motivations. And I'll tell you what they are. First, partly reactionary, and we admit that. The church ought not always be reacting to what's going on in the world but we admit that this is partly a reactionary sermon in light of the in your face avalanche of the homosexual mafia that is uh, trumpeting their message loud and clear in our day for example Brandon Ike as you might remember just last month the CEO of Mozilla one of the largest internet companies in the world was forced to resign why not because he ever said one word negatively about same-sex sin in fact six years ago he gave one thousand dollars of his own money to support a proposition in the state of california that would have endorsed marriage between one man and one woman and because that was found out last month he was forced to resign. Another example. 256 athletes are drafted every year in the NFL draft. 256 of them. It's the far and away most grossing monetarily sport in America. 256 athletes are drafted into that sport every year. I bet most Americans couldn't name 20 of them that were drafted two weeks ago. However, most Americans can name the one that was drafted number 249 out of 256, and it's not his fault. But Michael Sam was the number one news story on every American major news outlet that I checked on draft day. Number one because he's a professing homosexual. As of May the 21st, if you're counting, that was last Wednesday, all the northeastern states have legalized gay marriage. That means that as of last Wednesday, the majority of Americans now live in states that have legalized same-sex marriage. So today's sermon is admittedly partly reactionary. We live in a day and a time that an avalanche of information is coming at us about this issue. But there's another motivation. It's not only reactionary to the media, it's reactionary to the evangelical community. I'm not here today to give red meat to the politically right wing Part of the burden for today's sermon is born out of the fact that we think the evangelical community has trumpeted loudly and clearly and correctly the sinfulness of sin. But by and large, from our limited experience as pastors, the evangelical community has also managed to trumpet loudly and clearly the sinfulness of sin in a way that unbiblically ostracizes those who struggle with same-sex attraction. Maybe I should remind you at the beginning of the sermon that our Lord tended to gravitate toward the sexually deviant. Yet, so as not in any way to condone their sinful actions. I've been taking a Gospel per month this year, reading and rereading. Now, May is the Gospel of Mark. And it struck me how many times the prostitutes found themselves in the company of the potentate of the universe. So I want to do two things. I want to be crystal clear on sin, but not in a way that's red meat for the politically conservative. And I also want to be clear that the church is the right place for anyone who wants to accountably follow Christ also need to admit to you that I need your prayers even as you listen to this sermon. I cannot remember a time that I have been under what felt like such thick spiritual warfare in preparation for a sermon. I started preparing for this sermon last fall. I've read several books from cover to cover. I've listened to I don't know how many hours of conservative and liberal podcasts and other audio sources and read articles ad nauseum and consulted all seven passages in the Bible that reference homosexuality. And I've memorized most of them. And the warfare has been gigantic. I do not believe the enemy wants this sermon preached. In fact, the sermon's poorly titled. We, we plan the title so far in advance that until we meditate on the passage, we, we just give it our best guess. The sermon's really on the all-sufficiency of Jesus. It is about heaven and homosexuality. I have to show clearly from the passage why that title would have been picked. But the focus of the text and really the aim of the sermon is to point at the all-sufficiency of Jesus. The fact is you will become like what you behold. And if the Gospel is not the power of God for salvation not only eternally in the age to come, but to change a man. If the Gospel can't change a man imputed righteousness, declared right with God by the blood of Jesus Christ, and actual righteousness, where God conforms us progressively more into the image of His Son. If the Gospel's not the power of God for a holistic salvation, if Christ can't actually, and I mean actually, change you, then I have no Gospel to preach. Jesus changes people. Actually changes them. And He does so by the same grace that He exercises to save fundamentally. And He saves not only from sin. You shall name Him Jesus, the angel says to Joseph. Because He will save His people from their sin. He not only saves from sin, that is great news, but it is greater news that He saves for Himself. What you get is better than what you are removed from. And I want to preach His sufficiency to all types of sinners like me. So today the sermon is titled Heaven and Homosexuality and the text uses both ideas. I get heaven from the two uses, verse 9, verse 10, of the phrase kingdom of God. And I get homosexuality from number 5 in the list of 10, which is found at the end of verse 9. Homosexuality, heaven and homosexuality. The text unmistakably teaches that God is in the business of saving the sexually deviant, including homosexuals. And there are two parts to these verses. Verse 9 and 10 is what you were. Verse 11 is what you are. And the two things cannot mix. They're like oil and water. You cannot simultaneously be what you were and be what you are. Verse 9 and 10 is what you were. Verse 11 is what you are. This is written to the Christian. Paul believes that his audience, the church at Corinth, Though formerly living in a myriad of of habitual sins, the church is now comprised of those who are true Christ followers. They have been born again. And in this passage, he's writing according to verse 11 to people that he believes are saved. And he wants his readers to be served well by remembering what they were so that they can rejoice more deeply in what they are there's three ways I want to look at these three verses and it's really what Paul does to serve the Christian he gives them a warning he states his premise and then he ministers comfort the warning is in verse 9 do not be deceived the premise of the whole argument is the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God that's in verse 9 and the comfort comes in verse 11 you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. He warns them, don't be deceived. He gives them His premise, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and He gives them Gospel comfort. Verse 11, washing, sanctification, and justification. So let's deal with each of those briefly. The warning. Well, admittedly, number two won't be brief. (laughs) The warning. Do not be deceived. If we were doing dialogical preaching, I would sit on a stool up here and have you tell me what deceit means. I don't want you to hear this sermon as white noise. I want you to engage in it. But instead of doing the dialogical back and forth, small group discussion, preach this to yourself. Do not be deceived. This is a command. And it is a warning. Deceit by definition is to cause someone to believe something that is not true. The worst part of real deception is that you don't know you're deceived. That's what deception is. That's how a lie works. You don't know you believe a lie because you believe a lie. And Paul wants the church at Corinth to know and believe God's truth. He does not want them to be carried away into deception. That's the warning of verse 9. Because what he writes about them, I said already in verse 11, we know that he believes his audience is comprised of true Christians. And Paul's a good theologian. He knows that true Christians cannot ultimately be deceived. That is impossible, according to the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, who said that even the end times will be cut short for the sake of the elect, that's his word, so that they would not be deceived. You can't deceive the elect. If you're living under spiritual deception ultimately, like thinking unrighteous people inherit God's kingdom, you're not a Christian. Because Christians can't be deceived according to Jesus. And Paul would have known that. So if Paul knew that Christians can't be ultimately deceived, why would he say, don't be deceived? This is what I want you to catch. He tells them not to be deceived because he knows that it is the Word of God which he is. Presently, writing that is the tonic against the deceptions of the world. If you draw your conclusions about what is true and right based on what you feel, then you are, by definition, deceived. You're doomed. If the standard of truth is inside of you, subjectively, and not outside of you, objectively, you're ruined. So Paul writes to them in Scripture like Peter does in 2 Peter 1, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain God's calling and choosing you. Make certain that God elected you. How do you do that? How do you make sure that God chose you? You're not God. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So Peter's explanation to how, to how to know if you're elect is you practice righteousness. And he writes to them in 2 Peter chapter 1 a list of 13 enumerations of what righteousness looks like. The Word of God is the only sure standard by which we can be certain that our faith and practice is God-pleasing. Paul didn't want the church to be deceived. So he gave them the Word of God. And he gave them the Word of warning in the Word of God. Don't be deceived. Test everything you ever hear by the standard of God's written revelation of Himself in His Word. Don't be deceived. That's the warning. Number two, the premise. Verse 9, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's 25 sermons in that sentence. Everybody's unrighteous. You know Romans? There are none righteous. You know Isaiah. All your righteousness is as a filthy rag. You don't have any. And all the people in that category don't get the kingdom of God. If there's a period after verse 10 and nothing else, we're all going to hell. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate homosexuals, covetous thieves, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. That's you. And that's a tenfold enumeration of what unrighteousness looks like. It's not an exhaustive list. It's categorical. And it includes everybody in this room. And it's those kind of people who don't get God's kingdom. I can't preach all 20 of those sermons. But if you didn't zero in on it already, we're dealing with eternal things. Heaven and homosexuality. We're dealing with not getting God's kingdom or getting God's kingdom. And God, how benevolent is this God who doesn't want people to spiral out of control in spiritual confusion wondering if you're saved or not. He's not trying to be a fear mongerer. He's not trying to get you laying awake in bed at night praying the sinner's prayer a hundred times. Wondering if you're in or if you're out. He's not a spiritual manipulator. He's not one of the so-called evangelists who go around devouring widows' houses and putting their change in their pocket by making them all doubt their salvation and get notches in His belt every campaign He holds. That's not what God is like. God wants you to know if you're in or if you're out. And in three verses, we find out what disqualifies one person from the kingdom of God and what qualifies the next. To eliminate conjecture, to burn away like the noonday sun on the morning mist. All spiritual confusion. And all unfounded fear. The Apostle Paul explicates what he means by unrighteous by enumerating a tenfold description of what it looks like. You want to know what unrighteousness is? It's not what you do who you are notice that the list of 10 beginning in verse 9 and concluding in verse 10 is carefully written by the Holy Spirit so as not to decry the action but to implicate the person we're not talking about fornicating we're talking about fornicators we're not talking about idolatry we're talking about idolaters adulterers effeminate homosexuals thieves They steal because they are thieves. The fruit is what they take. The root is who they are. They are covetous. They are drunkards. They are revilers. They are swindlers. The problem is them, not what they do. And Paul says these are categorically unrighteous persons. The problem is who they are. It's not what they do. What they do is a problem. We're not condoning the sin. But if you keep plucking the fruit, it's coming back. The problem is at the root. Before we deal with the enumerations of sexual sin, maybe first we should point out that revilers and swindlers are equally designated by God along with fornicators as unrighteous people. Thieves are on the list, so maybe we should check our 2013 tax returns to make sure that we're not implicated as thieves before we go on pointing our politically right-wing finger at the rest of the people on the list. But four out of the ten examples, four out of ten, 40% of the examples in a tenfold list of what unrighteousness manifests itself as are in the category of sexual sin. Why would four out of ten fall in the category of sinfully expressing sexuality? There's good reason. If you don't see the four, obviously, it's number one, three, four, and five. Fornicators, adulterers, effeminate, and homosexuals. You could make a good case that number two, idolaters, is not only a catch-all for all kinds of sin... But in this list, you could make a case because of what Paul says elsewhere that he means sexual idolatry. You've actually made sexual gratification your God as he includes in other lists idolatry in connection with sexual sin. So maybe it's 50% of the list. Why? Well, there's good reason that at least 40% of the sinful manifestations in Paul's list refer to the sexually deviant. And you've got to know a little historical background to understand why. Have you been to Corinth? If you went to Paul's Corinth in the first century, you would find a more hyper-sexualized society than you've ever seen in America. We're on the downhill slope quick. And we're not Corinth yet. I've yet to meet the church in America that on its advertisement says sexual exploits with people who are not your spouse, including those of the same sex, actually bring you closer to God. That's what was going on in the city of Corinth. There was a temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, who was the goddess of so-called, the so-called goddess of beauty and fertility and sexual pleasure. It's been estimated by historic historians, Christian and otherwise, that as many as 1,000 temple prostitutes at the time of Paul's writing to the letter of Corinth earned their livelihood at that temple in that city. Corinth was the Vegas and Tijuana on steroids of the first century. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. And many of the temple servants weren't there by their own choice. They were conscripted into sex slavery. Slavery. It was a booming business in Corinth, in fact. And unfortunately, it would have included pederasty. Boys stolen from one place and brought to Corinth to be sold as toys to businessmen who came on their expeditions to make more money in their back pocket from Carthage and Alexandria and Rome. And then, after they frequented Aphrodite's temple, they would board their evening cruise liner to get back to their family waiting them at home. This isn't a problem only for the first century. I read a report that moved me to tears. If I've ever felt righteous indignation, and I'm not sure I have, but if I have, it's when I read stuff like this. I felt indignation, I just don't know if it was righteous. 10,000 sex workers were brought into Miami in January and February of 2010 for the Super Bowl. Indiana Attorney General Greg Zoller said, quote, a disturbing reality is that at such sports gatherings they have drawn criminal rings that traffic young women and children into the commercial sex trade. That's our country in our lifetime. And it wasn't hidden in Corinth. You could buy a ticket to go to the temple. And it was condoned. Paul wanted the church to know very well that those who practice fornication and adultery who are effeminate and homosexual are not headed for the kingdom of God. You cannot live in habitual sexual sin and be saved. You cannot live in habitual any sin and be saved. Before we touch on the 1 of 10 homosexuality, let's just briefly say what the other 3 that are related to sexual sin mean. Fornicators are those who are involved even in heterosexual sinful exploits. People sleeping with somebody that's not their spouse. Adulterers covers those who are married yet commit sexual sin. Likely some of those businessmen. The effeminate covers those men who desire and therefore seek to allure the sexually deviant by their outward appearance, mannerisms, and behavior. They're projecting themselves in such a way as to draw like a magnet the sexually deviant. That's what the word effeminate is referring to. It's not just how they look or act. It's what they're trying to gain from the way they appear and act. More could be said on that about the insidious sin of sensual dress among women in our day. But for time's sake, let's move to homosexuality. I want you to look at the word in verse 9. Homosexuals. It's the fifth fruit of unrighteousness in Paul's list. The Greek word arsen, tai. The word does not refer to those who are tempted to practice same-sex sin. It refers to those who are actively engaged in the practice of same-sex sin. By definition, that's what the word means. So we're not talking about being tempted to sin. We're talking about sinning. And they've taken on as an identity, this is not just what I do. I practice homosexuality. I am a homosexual. This is who I am. Again, it's not the ones who are tempted to practice. It's the ones who engage in the practice. The church needs to recover in our day for a variety of good, God-glorifying reasons. A distinction between sin and temptation. Hebrews 4, Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. All things as we are. He was tempted in every way that any of us have ever been tempted Jesus experienced that temptation and it's not sinful for him to be tempted in fact he never sinned Hebrews 4 15 so therefore we're not to confess temptation as sin we should certainly pray that God would lead us out of temptation Matthew 6 deliver us from temptation but being tempted is not in itself a sin Our first parents were tempted to sin in the Garden of Eden before they committed the original sin. Jesus, the second Adam, was continuously tempted in the wilderness and beyond, and He never walked around asking God to forgive him for being tempted so much. Being tempted is not a sin. These are not people who are tempted to commit sin. These are people who are committing the sin. James 1 says, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust." Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. James picks up on the very same thing. Sin and temptation. Don't be deceived about that. 1 Corinthians 6, the word tai," homosexuals, carries the meaning of those who are indulging in same-sex sin, not only those who are tempted to indulge in that sin. That's the meaning of the word. The fall of man the original sin of man has determined that we're all to use the theological category depraved we're all broken in every way the sin didn't affect only part of us the the fall didn't affect only part of us the fall affected all of us all of our being body soul and mind as a result of that we're broken in every way and just because we have desires for a thing, it does not follow that it is justified to do the thing that we desire because even our desires are broken. You may be tempted to sexual deviancy. Newsflash. In some way, every person in this room is so tempted. Everybody. There was a young man in Corinth who was sleeping with his own mom or mother-in-law. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 If the Lord blessed every sexual impulse in the heart of every fallen man, this world would effectively and immediately become a living hell. We're all broken. Nobody's exempt from being tempted to sexual deviancy. What's being decried by God and warned against is the indulgence in it. But part of the contemporary church's ineptness, 21st century American, let's say, Grace Church. Part of the church's ineptness to speak to the avalanche of the homosexual agenda that is coming down around us is related to the fact that the church has for so long winked at heterosexual sinfulness. Everyone's got to be held to God's standard. Period. Everybody. We need a Spirit wrought revival of celibate singleness in the church today we need a spirit wrought revival of marital faithfulness in the church today we need a spirit wrought revival of internet purity in the church today and while the heterosexual sinners are going around indulging in all their forms of sin no wonder it seems like double speak when the church tries to speak against same-sex sinfulness May the church again become the voice of clarity on sin, all sin, and help for the sexually broken. I have them in my notes. I'm not going to go through all of them. There are seven passages in the Bible that refer to same-sex activity. I am going to touch a couple of them. God give me wisdom to know which ones not to touch. The seven passages are 1 Corinthians 6, Genesis 19, Judges 19, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans 1, and 1 Timothy 1. I'll skip Judges 19, maybe out of fear. I don't know. It's got to be one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. After your food has settled really well, I encourage you to go read Judges 19. It, like Genesis uh, Judges 19, like Genesis 19, involves gay rape. Genesis 19, though, is the most familiar, probably, of all the passages. It's the famous Sodom and Gomorrah text. I believe that Paul had Genesis 19 in his mind when he was writing 1 Corinthians 6. In three verses, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 10, and 11, there are more direct parallels to Genesis 19 than I have time to tell you right now. In three verses, almost every word could be traced back in its root in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Greek writing of the New Testament. You can connect identical phrases. I think he had this text in mind. The Sodom and Gomorrah passage is something that Paul's thinking about, I believe. But what we often fail to realize about that text is all the characters in view. We know the end result. And rightfully so, we're quick to preach God's condemnation on the sexually deviant of that city. But we often forget that we're looking at the city through the lens of the eyes of Abraham who's sitting on top of the mountain praying. He's interceding for the city. He's asking, Genesis 18-23, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 1825, "...Far be it from You, Lord, to do such a thing to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are alike treated together. Far be it from You. Shall the Judge of all the earth deal justly?" Shall not the Judge of all the earth deal justly? He's an intercessor. As I read 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. There are people, perhaps in the city over which we look, that we too should pray and say, In Corinth, they were this, but now they're washed. So in Memphis, maybe they still are this and are yet to be washed. God, give us the heart of an intercessor. Paul's making a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. In 1 Corinthians 6, Abraham's praying a difference between the righteous and the wicked. There's so many parallels. Christians are well known for trumpeting that text when speaking against same-sex sins. And again, I want to say it loudly and clearly, rightfully so. I told you I'm not here to give red meat to the politically right wing. I'm trying to figure out how to be like Christ and hang out with the sexually deviant in a way that never condones their sin and points them to His saving work in the Gospel. Paul seems to use that text, Genesis 19, by putting himself not in the position of Lot or his daughters who ultimately escape or the wife who almost escapes, but in the position of Abraham. He's an intercessor. He's writing to the city and the church of Corinth. Lord, please spare these people. Don't let them be deceived. Do you have a heart like that? Paul is on the mountain. He's overlooking the city. He's praying with the saints that the people of God would be plucked like Lot from the fire. He's not gay bashing. He's trying to lead folks out of deception by standing in the gap for them between God and earth in His coming judgment. He's calling down heaven. But maybe, if we can't totally get the intercessor heart from Paul, maybe we can understand from Jesus who quoted the Sodom and Gomorrah text. It's one of the shortest verses in the whole Bible. It's three words long. Luke 17, 32. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus alluded to the Genesis 19 passage many times. I'll tell you in a moment where and how, but He quoted it once. Remember Lot's wife. Christ's reference to the Sodom and Gomorrah episode was to warn the self-righteous who are almost saved, to not look back at what they left in order to follow Christ, presuming that it's more satisfying than what He affords. Christ uses that passage to, content, to, to, to urge the Christian to continue pressing forward in obedience to all Christ's commands. Remember Lot's wife. Don't you look back. I'm better than everything you've ever left. That's the way Jesus uses the text, but the way He alludes to it. Ma, 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 ma. Matthew 10, Matthew 11, Luke 10. Jesus uses the Sodom and Gomorrah text in those places to highlight the greater wickedness of His own generation than the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. Have you ever felt like you've lived among a society that was more wretched, more depraved than what you read about in Sodom and Gomorrah? Jesus believed that His generation was like that. Before His famous words, Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened. In Matthew 11, Jesus condemned Capernaum, the main city where He practiced ministry, just north of the Sea of Galilee. He condemned that city saying, If the miracles had happened in Sodom, which happened in you, they would have repented long ago. Then He added, Matthew 11.24 It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And dear friends, I love you enough to tell you that the homosexuals in Sodom who did not see Jesus and did not therefore repent are according to Jesus less in line for His judgment Than the straight laced folks in Capernaum, where Peter's mother in law lived, who did see Jesus and didn't repent. Application make no mistake, you in this room today will be held more accountable than any person who ever inhabited Old Testament Sodom and Gomorrah because you have greater light, you have greater gospel revelation. That's one of the passages. Leviticus 18 says, Written to men, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, if there is a man who lies with a male as one who lies with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. It's another sermon, but I believe Jesus replaced capital punishment for lawbreaking with excommunication from the church in the New Testament. Romans 1 is... Got to be the next most popular passage to Genesis 19 concerning same sex sins. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. I've meditated a lot on Romans 1, especially the glorious phrase that precedes it, for in the Gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, the thing we all need, the thing we all crave, the thing sexual sin promises but can't ever provide, a righteousness, a satisfaction. I've meditated a lot on that passage, and I've thought, why, 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 why would same-sex sin be isolated from all others? On one hand, it is correct to say all sin is the same. On another hand, the Bible seems to categorize consequences, not only in this life, but in the life to come, of certain sinful indulgence. Why does Romans 1 clearly seem to put same-sex sinfulness in a category by itself? I believe the answer is you were not made for mirrors you're created in the image of God but you're not God the root sin of same-sex indulgence not temptation indulgence is a deviation from the gospel at its root that's why I said you can't live in habitual sin like this and be a Christian it's a deviation from the gospel at its root because it is gratifying self with something that is as much like self as possible That's why God decries it. Heaven will not be a hall of mirrors. You were not made for you. You're not made to see your own beauty and glory. You're made to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. The only thing that will ever satisfy you is a sighting, as Jonathan Edwards says, by that divine and supernatural light immediately imparted to the soul when you wake, as Charles Wesley said, and the dungeon is flamed with light and you see for the first time not your own so-called beauty, but the beauty of God in the face of His Son. Same-sex sin by definition, encourages you to look at something exactly like you. Whereas you're created to look at someone wholly other than you. Marriage, including its intimacy, is designed by God to show you that you're not made for you. That's why I believe homosexuality is isolated both for men and women in Romans 1 as a root sin. Salvation is gloriously God-centered. Heterosexual sex in the confines of marriage is designed mainly, it's got a lot of other purposes, designed mainly to display God's glory in giving us someone unlike us. Partly as a parable that we're made for God and not for ourselves. One other text I'll mention is 1 Timothy 1. I won't tell you all the things that I've thought about it because I want to get to some other applications after we circle back to 1 Corinthians. But in 1 Timothy 1, there's one thing i got to say. In a list that Paul gives, 1 Timothy 1, 8-10, of sinful behavior, what he calls lawless deeds, the lawless and rebellious, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. And then he gives this list. People who kill their fathers or mothers. That's the kind of folks we're talking about. People who kill their fathers or mothers, murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now listen to this. Whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. The glorious gospel of the blessed God. Anything that's contrary to the gospel. You see what Paul's just done? We're not talking about periphery sin. We're not talking about stuff in the realm of error. We're talking about sinfulness that by indulging in it necessarily removes somebody from the privileges of the gospel of the blessed God. The reason I had to say that is because of the word blessed. Makareu. Same word that's in the Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. You know the list. Makareu. It's literally the word happy. All these things that are not in accordance, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, that are not in accordance with the glorious gospel of the Makareu God, the happy God. I love it. Because everything in that list promises to provide pleasure for the ones that indulge in it. And it leaves them all empty. The thing they want if you want to Our our day and our vocabulary is kind of trifled down the meaning, but what they want is happiness. And they think indulging in said sin will provide happiness. And Paul says, You got the gospel of the happy God. You got the good news of the happy God. God is not telling you, Don't go find pleasure. God is saying to you, All the things that promise you pleasure will never provide it. Come have it in me. Come have happiness in me. You simply cannot live indulgent in homosexuality, which is in the list in 1 Timothy 1. You simply cannot live indulgent in that sin because it's contrary to the glorious gospel of the happy God. It's fundamentally opposed to the truth of the gospel. The thing that sin promises is provided in its right way in the gospel. Okay, we could say more about other passages that deal with same-sex sinfulness, but I want to speak a word positively to us all. What is God's will for your life? I'm talking about all of you whether you're four years old or 45 years old what is God's will for your life first Thessalonians chapter 4 for this is the will of God for you your sanctification that is that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel, his body, in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So to live in lustful passion and to engage in sexual immorality is according to God the definition of somebody who doesn't know Him. 1 Timothy chapter 1 ends with the phrase, though they profess to know God, by their deeds they deny Him. First Thessalonians 4 goes on to say, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So therefore, he who rejects this instruction is not rejecting man, but is rejecting God who has given His Holy Spirit to you. From beginning to end, the Bible is crystal clear that the only sexual indulgence that God blesses is that which occurs inside the confines of human marriage between a man and a woman. All other sexual activity is sinful Period. All other forms of sexual indulgence are forbidden by Scripture and they are the fruit of unrighteousness. The habitual practice of any such sin will reveal that a person has not been converted and is headed for eternal damnation. Therefore, love requires that the church say what God says. It would be unloving to say otherwise, which is the main mantra of those who don't want to hear this message. You're not loving. You don't want my happiness. To the contrary, we say with a broken heart, it's precisely because we love that we don't want you to perish in your sin and to miss in this lifetime, not only the the age to come, the great blessing that you were created to enjoy. That's the premise. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. We've heard the warning do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Finally, let's go to the comfort. This is in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. What a verse. And such were some of you that you were washed, that you were sanctified, that you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. There's so much that your eyes could stop on and meditate for long hours with joy. I do pray that the preaching of Grace Church in some small way becomes helpful to you in your private devotions of learning what it means to meditate on Scripture, but this verse right here should really be stewed in. The repetition of the word Allah in the Greek. But, 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 but you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. The emphatic at the beginning of the verse were. You're not this anymore. You. You who could be described as finding your identity from the tenfold enumeration of unrighteousness. You, you, you. But, but, but. And it's all passive voice. The subject's not doing the action. The subject's receiving the action. You did not wash yourself. You did not sanctify yourself. You did not justify yourself. It happened to you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And it happened in a particular location. Namely, the name. It happened inside of a house. And the house is the name. And over its doorway is the residence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And crawling His mighty self inside that house when you took refuge in the name was the Spirit of God. You see a reference to the Trinity in this one verse. The Spirit of God, which presupposes there's a God whose Spirit it is, and the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. And the Spirit marching Himself inside that house as you take refuge from God in God. The Holy Spirit coming in the inferno of His white-hot holiness and washing you. And sanctifying you. And justifying you. So that you can't say anymore, I am fornicator. It's not what I do, it's who I am. You can't say anymore, I am adulterer. I am covetous. You can't say that. You were that you now have been effectively changed from the inside out. Your old dispositions might still be dying and you might still struggle with the same temptations until you breathe your last breath. But your identity has fundamentally been changed. It's the good news of the Gospel. I said at the beginning, if I don't have a Gospel to preach that actually changes people, I have no Gospel to preach. Verse 9 and 10 is what you were. Verse 11 is what you are. All the action happens in the passive voice. It happens to the subject, not by the subject. Washed. What does it mean? What does it mean to be washed? It's a picture of the spiritual cleansing from the filth of our wickedness. Brian and I had an insurance guy come to the church this week at our request to sell us some insurance. We're not letting anybody get out of the Grace Church office without asking them about the gospel. And this good brother sat at the table in the church office four or five blocks away from here and uh, gave a glowing testimony of faith in Christ. And he said, here's how it happened. I'd heard the Gospel many times. I was living in all kind of riotous sin. And in his words, he was driving his car one day and he pulled over on the side of the road because the shame of his sin. And he explained what some of that was. Overwhelmed him. He said he felt filthy. He just felt dirty. That the, the presence of the holiness of God crawling into his car as he drove down the road just exposed him. The truth of the gospel just blinded him in his rebellion. And then his phrase when he cried out to God, I love it. I love this word. I felt. He said, Oh, I want you to feel this. I felt. Clean. I felt clean. Have you ever felt clean in the presence of God? We don't get paid to say what we're talking about. We're talking about the omnipotent King of the universe bringing the righteousness of His Son down into your filthy soul so that you can stand in His presence blameless with great joy. That's what it means to be washed not only washed from what you did, but cleansed from who you were. Sanctified. It's not a systematic theology verse. It's not talking about the process of becoming more like Christ. It's the Old Testament kind of talk which Paul had in his mind as he writes the text. It means being set apart for the purposes of God. You used to use the vessels and members of your body for all kind of rebellion against God and now you're holy you're set apart you're sanctified you're totally consecrated for the use of the Lord every part of you including your sex organs have been given over to the Lord Jesus Christ for his glory and for his use it's similar to the language of Romans 6 the members of your body now belong to the Lord the drunkard's stomach, the drunkard's liver, the drunkard's esophagus now belong to the Sovereign of the universe who bled and died for His redemption. The fornicator's sex organs now belong to the living God. You're sanctified. You're not yours anymore. You belong to somebody else. It's, first, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We conclude this. That one died for all, therefore all died. So that, so that, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. If you don't want to walk forward with Jesus, friends, you have not been saved. Justified. That's a word. Justified. Not justifying yourself. You were justified. It happened to you. What does it mean? It means that God says, not only do I want you, but I'm making you acceptable to Me. You thought your sin was so great that a God like me couldn't reach my arm down from heaven and get you? I'm going to make you righteous. Verse 9, unrighteous. Verse 11, justified. Declared righteous by God. You have been made right with God, by God, for God. That's justification. It's an imputation. A crediting to your account of all that is true of Jesus. And if it could possibly get any better, it happens in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. No matter what kind of sin you're calling in, I said this is not an exhaustive list. It's categorical. In many cases, the church has taken unhelpful pot shots at those who experience same-sex attraction. And this passage shouts, it's precisely those kind of people that the living God and the Lord Jesus Christ died to save. The Gospel is good news. You want to know what terrible news is? Go fulfill all your depraved pleasure. That's terrible news. If God said, go be a hedonist. He did that to Old Testament Israel. You remember, you want quail? I'll give you quail. It'll run out your nose and come out your ears. You want more of it? Here's some more of it. It would be hateful for God to give you all you wanted the gospel is good news that though we all live in the list of 10 Jesus the lord came and lived under every one of those temptations all of them just like you and I experienced them to quote hebrews in the same way and then he took his life of perfect obedience 100% success a plus on every test and took that life of righteousness up to a wooden cross outside of Jerusalem on the hill of Calvary, and he died under the judgment of God as a sinless sacrifice for sinners like you and I. Risen again, the Spirit of that Jesus stands ready. I believe God is leaning forward on the throne of heaven this morning, waiting for somebody to cry out to Him for saving mercy, so that the Holy Spirit can be dispatched. Go get him. That God can send His Spirit. I love it. It's in the verse. The Spirit of our God. The Spirit wants to come into your soul. He wants to make you alive together with Christ. He wants to show you what real satisfaction is all about. This is the good news of the Gospel. It's a passage about people who tried everything that they thought would give them satisfaction. And I love verse 11. After all that, You don't have to repeat the same mistake. You can learn from other people's mistakes. After all that, they would stand up here this morning in this church if they could and tell you that Jesus is better. You've got to turn from your sin and all the faux promises of satisfaction and give yourself to the treasure hidden in that field that's worth more than everything you've ever owned or ever could own. Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Look at those words. Name of the Lord that's where it happens. It, it doesn't say it happens by him it says it happens in him in the name of the lord the psalmist said the name of the lord is a strong tower the righteous runs into it and they are safe these are people in verse 11 who took refuge from themselves they turned away from them and if you hadn't done that you're not a christian I'm not only talking to the sexually deviant. If you think your squeaky clean life has commended you to God, then you're joining ranks with the Pharisee who stands up and prays in the temple. I thank you that I'm not like that man. But Jesus says it's that man who gets on his face and says, be merciful to me, a sinner, who goes down to his house, and I quote, justified. These people have taken refuge from themselves in Christ. Remember, the list is not only what they did, it's who they are. They found their identity in their action. Now their identity is bound up in the man at God's right hand. They're washed by His cleansing blood. They're sanctified, now set apart as holy. They're presented blameless before God by the Holy Spirit. They're justified. Final word about this verse and a little bit of application. Three letters. Verse 11. O-U-R. You see that little word? It's at the end of the verse. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Do you see that? With a broken heart, we've, we must say, That those who continue in any lifestyle of habitual sin, including those not explicitly mentioned in verse 9 and 10, cannot also say in truth, God is our God. He's not your God if you will not turn away from your sin. But these people, these people, who had traded on Christ for sensual pleasure, these people would say to you, I've never left mother or brother or lover or house or land or anything else that I didn't find in Christ in this lifetime and in the one to come a hundredfold more. In the words of the 19th century missionary to Africa, David Livingstone, I never made a sacrifice. How did you give it all up? David, how did, you, how did you forsake that life of ease and comfort to go out there to the bush of Africa and chart it out for future missionaries to come on your hills so that they would know where to go and who they would find. How did you do it? And Livingstone said, what are you talking about? I've never made a sacrifice. What I gained compared to what I gave is not even quantifiable. You're not giving up anything to come to Jesus. If there's any I ever want to preach from this pulpit about the Gospel, if I have to isolate it down to one of the best parts of the best news, it would be this. Jesus is better. Nobody's telling you to give up a life of pleasure to come have this boring God. The burden of the text, I said the sermon should have been titled, The All-Sufficiency of Jesus. He's better. He's better not only in the life to come, He is better in this lifetime than any possible alternative by way of application there's so many things that could be said i have good night uh five pages worth of application i'm not going to give it all but let me start here before uh i have to admit that i'm a slow grower my growth and grace is at best snail's pace it's painfully slow. I don't know what this makes you think about me or this church, but I've said to others who belong here, I think part of the reason God has called me to be a pastor is I just need substantially more time in the Word to grow than you do. So don't be jealous of me. I'm jealous of you. You, you read your Bible for 10 minutes in the morning and fly off to work, and you're advancing at obvious rates. I'm just slow. Well, admittedly, part of my slowness is also empathy with those who struggle with various challenges. As a pastor, you're supposed to be empathetic, and you're not supposed to fake it. It's supposed to be real. Like Jesus, you have compassion. You want that, but you can't conjure that up. Well, to get to the point, Tracy and I, I'll speak personally, I was not very empathetic with those who had walked through miscarriages until a few years ago, when Tracy and I walked through one. I thought it was a big deal, and that it brought real sadness. But though nobody else sees the wife's belly showing, and nobody else starts to plan the nursery, and nobody else schedules the doctor's appointments, they know you're having a baby, but to them, because they don't see all the... Coming anticipation in the growth of the womb, understandably, they don't engage empathetically in your pain when you walk through the loss. I admit I was not very empathetic until I felt the pain. Now, a friend of mine was a peer and classmate at Bethlehem Baptist Church the year I did a church planter residency program before Grace Church was planted. His name is Wesley Hill. Wesley and I uh, sat through John Piper's preaching class together. There were ten of us, and I got to know him well. I heard Wesley preach and was greatly edified. He listened to me preach and was kind (laughs) with his review. Wesley left Bethlehem and went on to England and did a Ph.D. at Durham University, and I came to Memphis, and you know the story. A few years ago, Wesley published a book called Washed and Waiting based on 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Wesley explained that he himself is a man who for as long as he can remember all the way back to childhood in Little Rock struggles with same-sex attractions. Because I knew Wesley and I'm hearing his voice as I'm reading his book it's like the miscarriage experience for me for the first time i kid you not i didn't weep like i don't want to exaggerate i'm a bucket of tears laying in the floor but i was moved to tears multiple times reading wesley's book as i'm hearing wesley a a guy i know talk about what feels like a lifelong death to him so by way of application i want to begin by trying to help you feel pain I almost did this, and for better, at a better judgment I trust, didn't do it. But when I walked up here to start the sermon, I almost said every family separate. Men on this side, ladies on this side, children, you cannot sit with your parents or your sibling. Now, you can never have them again. When you leave the service today, don't go home to them. The best you can do is talk to them through a glass at the police station with a phone, and you can hear their voice, but you can't hold them. You can't touch them. Now, I've preached a long sermon already. You know I'm not justifying same-sex sin. I'm trying to help you empathize with somebody who says, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be faithful to Jesus. I don't know where, from whence came the disposition. I don't want to indulge in it. I want to, fi- I want to fight for faith. When the church says to that kind of person, there's no room for you here, what are we? We might as well close the whole operation if there's not room here for people who say, I want to follow Jesus. Because last I checked, if there's no room here for people who are tempted to sin, goodbye. But this is what I want to say to those who struggle with same-sex attraction. I have 13 applications. I don't know if I'll say them all, but I want to say several of them so they're coming quickly. Your sexuality and your sexual desires are not your identity. You are a person created in the image of God for the glory of God. Your identity is bound up in your position either in the first Adam or the second Adam. You're in line behind one of the Adams. For Christians, if you are in Christ, no matter your temptation, Jesus defines you. So I want to encourage you to meditate deeply on all the in Christ passages that are in the New Testament and see your identity in Him. Number two, if you're a Christian and you struggle with same-sex attraction, heaven is for you. One day, Romans 8, 28 and 29 is going to burst out of you in the most beautiful tone you could ever imagine. And it's going to come with serious joy. You're going to be able to say, God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, including this battle that I fought. And you're going to be able to say, thank you for sustaining me to be conformed progressively during my life and now for eternity into the image of your dear Son. Okay, but Jesus is not only... Good news for the next life. He's good news for this life. And I want to say, especially to those who struggle with same sex attraction, Mark 10. Peter began to say to Jesus, Behold, we left everything and followed you. Jesus doesn't say, You poor soul. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, no one has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much. Now, in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is better. So I would say read, for example, Thomas Chalmers' sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, to talk about the betterness of Jesus. Number three, Jesus is enough. I've said if we don't have a gospel to preach that that actually changes people, actual righteousness then we don't have a gospel to preach so also if we don't have a sufficient savior then we have we have no good news jesus is enough i can hear how the accusations might come against this and all the questions that might rail against it but listen he's all sufficient he's enough in this life he's enough in the life to come more on that in a moment number four if you're not yet a christian you must be born again that is not optional To use the logic of 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, now you are washed, sanctified, justified. Then we could say over Memphis, maybe such are some of you, you are not yet washed, sanctified, justified, but you will be. But you've got to come to Christ. You must believe the Gospel. You have to turn from yourself and your sin and put your hope in Christ. Fifth, the church is for you. For, for all kind of redeemed sinners, we are a pre-heaven support group. We're an assurance of salvation cohort. So don't isolate yourself. The last thing that somebody struggling with any temptation, same-sex attraction included, needs is to hide or isolate themselves. In fact, when sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, the first thing our first parents did was try to hide. Try to isolate themselves. Don't hide. Come. Come to the body of Christ. Let us fight with you for faith in Growth and grace. Christ is all-sufficient. I said I would come back to it because I wanted to say it this way. It was during Passion Week that Jesus said to those who questioned the resurrection, oh, haven't you read the Scripture? Don't you know the power of God? Jesus said, in heaven, we're not going to be married or given in marriage. Hmm. Then He went to the cross to secure that eternal promise. Now, I want you to think about this. In the age to come, Jesus said the good news is there will be no more marriage. That's why when we stand at the altar in wedding ceremonies, we say till death do us part. Because at death, we're parting. In heaven, there's going to be no marriage. I don't know if you heterosexually inclined believers have contemplated the fact, but you will have zero heterosexual marriage disposition in heaven. So also for those who have same-sex dispositions. It will be gone in the age to come for those who are in Christ. There will be no more of that desire because of the sufficiency of Christ. He will be all in all. He really is enough for all of His people for all of eternity so that no one will say that they're lacking anything even though nobody is going to be married. He's enough. He can meet the deepest need of your soul. Sinful sexual gratification leaves you empty every single time. And if you've been there, you know it. Sin can never deliver on its promises. Nothing in the list of 1 Corinthians 6 ever delivered what it promised. The most godly man I've ever known, a guy named Clyde Cranford who died in the year 2000, 46 years old, died a virgin, celibate, walked with Jesus. Christ is enough. I've said this already, but seventh, God's not calling you away from pleasure. He's calling you toward it. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. First Timothy, already told you, calls you to the gospel of the happy God. All that will ever satisfy you is bound up in God. Number eight, if it is proven that there is something indicating that people are, quote, born this way, same-sex attractions, even if that is discovered, the Bible would not be ready to be burned and locked away and never read again. In fact, we would uphold from Scripture that if such a gene was ever discovered, it would be part of our post fall brokenness, not our creation design, as you see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, when in His image God made us male and female for marital purposes. Ninth, I would say, confide in your brothers and sisters, in Christ. You're young, confide in your parents. Number 10, same-sex attraction cannot be the unpardonable sin. It's impossible. So if you feel like you're relegated to hell because of the way you feel on the inside sexually, it's simply not true because 1 Corinthians 6 says clearly that it's precisely those kinds of people that God is in the business of saving. And if He cannot pardon the sin, then He cannot save those people. It's not the unpardonable sin. And you cannot continue in those sins and be pardoned. Number 11, don't be thin-skinned. It is hard and it is a very sensitive, highly emotive issue to talk about. Don't think you ought to talk to everybody under the sun about it, but be willing to hear. Believe that God is saving, 1 Corinthians 6, I'll use God's Word, homosexuals. He is caring about exposing all of our sin, not only yours, so that all of His people will find all of their satisfaction in Him ultimately. Ultimately. Don't be thin-skinned. If you're hurting, keep in mind the very true adage that's been proven time and time again. Hurting people tend to hurt people. So as you're receiving help, even if your brothers and sisters aren't always the most helpful in their help, assume the best and don't stab the helpers. You might not like being told what to do, but Jesus says you have to love being told what to do. And that's true for all of us. And He does have rights to tell us what to do. Twelve, if you're a Christian, don't refer to yourself with adjectives that are who you were. You're not those things anymore if you're in Christ. Even in Wesley's book, I don't think it's the most helpful to call yourself a gay Christian. I don't think it's in keeping with the truth of the Gospel. Christ is your identity, nothing else. Everything else is subsidiary subsidiary to Christ. Drink deep from the Song of Solomon. You are your beloved's. He is yours. You are in Christ. And I want you to dare to believe the best news of all the good news. Not only what you're saved from, but what you're saved to. What's coming is an everlasting day of all that God says is true of Christ being experientially True of you. And that day's coming. To those who have never struggled with one same sex attraction, you must be born again. You are not saved because of your squeaky clean sexuality. Jesus saves. Verse 11, heaven is for you. You're not saved because you're better. You've got to listen to Jesus on Sodom and Gomorrah and you've got to work out the fact that He thinks that His generation is more wicked than theirs because they heard from and saw Him. So have you. You must turn to Christ. Also, if you've never experienced same-sex attraction, you need to lean into the sufficiency of Jesus. You're not going to be married forever. Till death do us part is your Testimony. That is a biblical theology of marriage. Jesus alone meets your deepest need. Marital health is not built on marital sex. It's built on Christ. He's got to be everything for you. If your spouse is maimed in a horrific accident, God forbid, and can no longer be of sexual pleasure, then you can and must still have a God-honoring, fulfilling marriage and that is only possible because Jesus is everything. The church is for you. Therapy from all your bigotry. Therapy from your political activity. Insofar as it's not biblical. So learn. Those of you who've never felt what some of our brothers and sisters feel, learn to empathize. Weep with those who weep. Weep for those who don't yet weep. Weep with Jesus over Jerusalem. Be the help. May Grace Church become the kind of environment that all kind of struggling sinners who want to follow Christ can find help and refuge. Also to those who don't have same-sex attractions, manifest God-glorifying heterosexual standards. If you're single, be celibate. Period. In your use of the internet, be faithful. Period. And let us manifest the enoughness of Christ in that heterosexuality. Jesus is enough. If you only love those who love you back, what do you do more than others? That's how Jesus would reason from the Sermon on the Mount. Love people who might not initially love you back. In the following pages, I've got this glorious story of Rosaria Butterfield, professor at Syracuse. Former lesbian. Active in the LGBT community. Today, married to a Reformed Presbyterian Church pastor with children. Because a Calvinist pastor, not her husband, a Calvinist pastor had all his theological I dotted and all his theological T's crossed. A Calvinist. Loved her and loved her and loved her and loved her and pointed her to Christ and patiently just let God deal with her. And she was gloriously converted and as I said now, married with children. It's not going to be everybody's testimony, but love those who might not love you back. Become a good listener. Al Mohler's first sermon at Southern Seminary when he was inaugurated as president was titled, Don't Just Say Something, Stand There. We're always wanting to jab. Listen. Listen to people. Become a good listener. Don't tolerate sin one bit and don't flip into preacher mode every time somebody starts confiding in you. Listen. You might be the first person somebody's ever talked to about some of the deep challenges in their life. There'll be time for talk, but not every time. Let's Listen. Finally, to kids and parents. Kids, I want you to, if you didn't hear anything I just preached, which I know is maybe more common than I would like to think, listen to me, kids. Talk to your parents about everything. Girls, your mom needs to be your best friend. Boys, your dad needs to be your best friend. I want you to tell them everything. Talk to your parents. Parents, talk with your kids about everything be parents yes be parents raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the lord teach them the instruction of the word yes be their parents i'm not saying you know abdicate parental responsibility in uh, the name of being friend but also get in their world be their friend don't always lecture them spend lots of time listening to them find out what interests them ask them what they think about when they lay in bed awake at night Get in their world of imagination when they're young. Help them navigate the complexities of a fallen world with the wisdom and grace of God. And if your kids can't talk to you, they're going to find somebody who'll listen. Well, you did it to me again. I didn't make it to the end, but we'll stop there. Let's pray.